Right? Oh. That would be funny. That would be funny. Oh. Be Ow! Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Fireside Chat. And we're having a semi-dog convention to begin with. This, of course, is Snoopy. Mr. Tubbs is not... It. Oh, my God. That was perfect. Whew. Just made it for the introduction. Mr. Tubbs, we're hoping to train to take that spot, which was held for years by the late, great Otto. Oh, right now, Megan, the possessor of the most famous arm in America, is trying to do it. Well, at least you're getting a glimpse of Otto. Oh. No, I mean Otto. I mean of Mr. Tubbs. Okay. Yes. Look up, Mr. Tubbs. Say hi. All right. Anyway, welcome. It's the Fireside Chat. I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to open up with a question because that will lead to some important opening comments. And then I'll go to the video question and the other questions. So here it is. It, it actually comes from a young woman named Jenny in Kigali, Rwanda. Rwanda is in East Africa. Hi, Dennis. I'm Jenny from Rwanda. I heard your Dennis and Julie episode. And you should all know that I do this weekly podcast with Julie Hartman called Dennis and Julie. I have no doubt you would love it. You could watch it or you can listen to it. It's, uh, it's a, it brings out different parts of me that as a result of our communication, it's a unique a podcast. I heard your Dennis and Julie episode where you discussed most religious people's faith in God being contingent upon receiving his protection from calamities slash suffering. I too held that belief for a long time and subsequently lost my faith in God after going through a series of personal tragedies in my late teens and early 20s. And I mostly consider myself agnostic now. What do you think is the point of believing in God if he won't intervene when tragedy befalls us? What benefit is there in praying and cultivating a relationship with a God who is supposedly all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful, yet watches us suffer without offering any help? Thank you for all you do, because I've learned a lot since I began listening to you last year. Well, now you know why I decided to open up with this question. This is a very, very important subject to me because I believe that people's understanding of God is, is profoundly flawed. I don't blame them at all. I certainly don't blame you. I believe that a great many people have a flawed understanding of God, and that flawed understanding is what leads a lot of people away from belief in God. So let me begin by saying, I never, ever, even as a child, believed that God is there to protect me or, or anybody else from suffering, including unjust suffering. I have never had that vision of God, my, and my vision is correct. And I know that almost sounds arrogant because, you know, different people have different visions of God, and they're all legit, you might say, but that's not true. And the reason that I say it with such certitude 
is that I use reason to come to belief. And most people who believe use a, a combination of what they've been taught, what they're used to, what they want to believe. I call my Bible commentary the rational Bible for a good reason. My vehicle to God and to understanding the Bible is reason. God gave us reason. He didn't give it to Mr. Tubbs. Mr. Tubbs and every any other animal does not have reason. We humans do. We should use it. So on this issue of God being there to protect us from suffering, the, the reason that I, at a very early age, I found that untenable is that I knew how much suffering there was in human history and God allowed it to happen. So when people say they expected God to help them in their suffering, my first reaction is, well, but God didn't help billions of others <laughs> when they suffered. Why didn't that trouble your faith in God? And I'm not saying this, God forbid, as a criticism or an attack, just as a logical question. I'll give you an example. I may have given this on a fireside chat, but I, I can't expect you to remember everything I've said. I got a call on my radio show many years ago from a woman, said, Dennis, I just want you to know I was always opposed to capital punishment. You've heard me speak about this one? Yeah. Okay. And I I never I, I so I never agreed with you, you Dennis. And now I do. I go, really? Why? I do because my brother was murdered, which is of course horrific. And I want the murderer put to death. So, of course, I offered my condolences to have a loved one murdered is, is, is the word is overused. That's, that's traumatic. But I didn't let it go with that. I said, so let me understand something. When anybody else's brother was murdered, you were against capital punishment. Now that your brother is murdered, you're for capital punishment. Why weren't you for capital punishment when all these other brothers and sisters were murdered? And the same thing I would say to anybody who says, well, I, I've endured this unjust suffering. Now I can't believe in God. So you could believe in God when all these other people in history have, have undergone unjust suffering? <laughs> I... I I don't get that. I, I Intellectually, I just don't understand that. Number two, God's, God's purpose is not to bail us out of suffering. I don't know where people get the idea, at least biblically. I know that there are Psalms that imply, you know, God hears the, the prayers and answers the prayers of those who call out unto him. I understand that. And I, I do believe God hears us. I do deeply believe that. But it's obvious that he does not uh, answer what we want in, in many, many cases. 
He is not, as I have put it so often, a celestial butler. You have stopped believing in a God that doesn't exist. A God that bails everybody out of suffering doesn't exist. God allows suffering. By the way, why God allows suffering? It's a very fair question. I don't have, I don't have a great answer to it, and I've thought about it all of my life. There are two types of suffering, man-made and natural. Cancer is natural, earthquakes are natural, and man-made is murder, torture, rape, and so on. God doesn't intervene usually in either. If, let's say, God did, what kind of meaningful life would that be? So let us imagine there was no disease. It was not possible to get sick. Is that the world that, that we would like to have been created? Maybe. I can't imagine it. But So what would happen exactly? Let us say you decided to forego sleep, get three hours of sleep five days in a row, uh, then uh, to, uh, I, I don't know, go out in, in, in freezing weather with, uh, with no coat on. In other words, is there any way you could have contracted an illness? It, it, would, it would entail a world where animals could not kill people, perhaps not even each other, because that's, that's also a question against God, as it were. And with regard to human suffering, so would you believe in a God who stopped every single human who hurt any other human? And where would that, where would that end? Would, how about a slap in the face? Would God allow that? but not a murder? Okay, so you're saying, oh, he would allow a slap on the face. Ten slaps on the face? Would he, Would no matter what, you, you're stuck. Would he allow an insult? Insults can hurt. Would he, would he allow that? Would he allow people to lie? Lies cause more evil than slaps. Would God allow people to lie? Once you want an intervening God and that's the only God you'll believe in, then it ends the human condition as we have it. It's ro we're, we're robots. We can't hurt verbally. We can't hurt physically. We can't be hurt. We can't get sick. Do we die? If you, if you, fall, if you fall from a third-story floor, will God let you die, or does he parachute you down? So I, I've never believed in such a God. So therefore, the God you have stopped believing in is not the God I believe in. It is not the God that I believe exists in, in the world of the Bible from which I get my notion of God. So then if God doesn't, you ask, if God doesn't help us, what is he there for? I'll have an answer to that. He's there to tell us how to lead a good life. He's there to give us hope. Because if there is no God, we die, and that's the end for eternity. Whereas if there is a God, there is something, there's some afterlife. This life is not meaningless. He gives life meaning. He gives me moral instruction. 
He gives me an afterlife. He gives hope. There's a lot that God does. And for those who have a, a profound relationship with him, that is life-filling. I have a relationship with God, but it's, it's more respect than intimate, <laughs> which is fine. Everybody has works their own way through that. that I, I, by the way, I'm very, very open and I'm very rational. And I wrote in one of my first books, Think a Second Time. It's a book of 44 essays. It's an introduction to my thinking on, on 44 subjects. And one of my essays is, is God lovable? And I wrote, I find the hardest commandment in the Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. I have never found belief in God to be difficult. I have found loving God to be difficult precisely for the reason you said. But that's not the same as not believing in God. I deeply believe in God. So I believe if you think this through rationally, you can come back to a belief in God, but not back to the belief in the God you believed in before. That's not God. That is, as I said, a celestial butler, a butler in heaven, Superman on call to help me out. Okay, that was important. Let's go now. Now, if I can do this, ladies and gentlemen. Wow, I did it. Wow. The video question of the day. Hi, Dennis. My name is Miriam Petrosian, and I'm a current employee at PragerU. I've been watching Fireside Chat since I was a freshman in college, and I have a question for you. I'm wondering, where is your favorite place to travel, whether domestic or internationally? My go-to vacation spot anywhere. Okay, this may depress you. I am in my go-to vacation spot. This house. <laughs> I travel so much, virtually every week of the year, that the thought of having no work and being at home with my wife and my friends and my audio system, my music, my photography, my hobbies. It sounds great. Having said that, you're really asking perhaps, what's my favorite place to visit? I get that a lot because I've been to 130 countries. I've been abroad every single year since I was 19 except for 2020, there was no way to go anywhere. I would have gone, but there was no place to go. And uh, I don't have a great answer. I will just tell you that whenever I'm asked that two places come to mind, I love visiting, in, visiting India and I love visiting Israel. And as is my want, I asked myself a long time ago, why those two places? And what do they have in common, if anything? And I came up with an answer. They're the only two countries with their own religion. 
There are many countries with Islam. There are many countries with Christianity. There's only one country with Judaism. And there's only one country with Hinduism. Well, technically, I believe Sri Lanka, but it's, it's, it's you know, off the coast of India or, or Nepal. But basically, it's India. So I think that that's part of the reason they're very interesting because they have their own religious culture. And it has made them very, very interesting. But I have found virtually every one of the 130 interesting. There are a couple that I am not aching to go back to, but it's very rare. But other than that, I really, uh, um, if I have time, it's enjoyable being home. It's enjoyable taking a road trip. I love taking car trips. The American road is a legend. This is a country of roads. You can go anywhere, basically, by car. And I love that. Okay. Here we go. Oh, this is a toughie. Sibel. C-Y-B-E-L-E with an accent over the E. The first E. 39, Cincinnati, Ohio, USA. Hello, Dennis. Thank you for your contribution to humanity. That's very sweet of you. I homeschool my two children and consider myself lucky to have found PragerU. You are lucky. <laughs> and we're lucky that you found us. Educational programs that me and the kids, I know people don't do it anymore, but it should be the kids and I, <laughs> absolutely love. What you have created is truly a treasure trove. Well, I didn't create it, but I helped create it, and it is a treasure trove. My question is with regard to a recent fireside chat topic, why you should stay in contact with your parents. That's a passion of mine, as everybody knows. My husband does not know his father and was not raised by his father or mother. After being raised by his maternal uncle, so that means his mother's brother, my, the mother came back into his life when he was 18, and we maintain a relationship with her. Recently, his father reached out via Facebook. My husband has no interest in meeting this stranger, and I don't blame him. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this unique situation. Thanks again for everything. When I speak about the moral demand that, unless you have been horribly abused, you owe it to your parents to be in touch with them. You don't owe it to them to love them, but you, it is wrong not to be in touch at all. It is almost always just wrong, really wrong, gratuitously cruel. Well, I am referring to the people who raised you. I'm not referring to necessarily a birth parent. There, I'm told that uh, in, in Rome, uh, there were, so in Roman, there, there is a different word for the parent that raises you and the parent that gives birth to you. I know one is pater and I don't remember what the other is in the case of the father. That, that's correct. The parents who raised you, you owe, you, you owe contact to. 
th those who give, gave birth to you and did not raise you, I don't believe you have the same obligation. Does that answer the question? Good. Okay. Wiley, 27, Keller, Texas. Dennis, you are a man who claims to have virtually no expectations. That's true. He knows me. Do you hold expectations for audio equipment? What about relationships with people? Do you hold expectations that they will be there for you in a pinch? I hold very few expectations. You got me right. What is an expectation? The certitude that something will happen. I expect the sun to rise tomorrow, right? So do you. Everybody does. That means you know what will happen. That's what I understand an expectation is. But I don't know what will happen, especially if I can't control it. I could expect me to be a decent person tomorrow. I can have expectations of me, but I can't have expectations about what I don't control. Anything can happen to anybody at any time. That's the way it works. Do I have expectations of my audio equipment? Well, what does that even mean? Do I expect it to, to turn on when I turn the on button on? Yeah. Yeah, but I also know there's a good chance one day it won't work. Very few, very few items last forever. So I don't think in terms of those expectations. Do I have expectations with relationships with people? I have hopes, but I, I don't think I have expectations. And so it's part of the reason I'm so grateful for my friends. Remember, expectations is the enemy of gratitude. If you expect A, you won't be grateful for A. And gratitude is everything. Do you hold expectations that they will be there for you in a pinch? If I, if I were in deep need, I would hope that they would be there more than I would expect it. That, that's what, again, uh, that goes back to my earlier statement of having hopes more than expectations. All right, let's see. Okay, it's a long one. I wonder if I could. Julian in Bristol, England. Hi, Dennis. I thoroughly enjoy your fireside chats and regularly listen while I walk my eight-year-old Springer Spaniel named Bunkers. Hi, Bunkers. My question is this. Our modern world seems to be really focused on rights. Everyone, it seems, is fighting for their rights. I wonder whether anyone has a human right at all. What exactly is a human right? What makes it a right? Why is even shelter or food a right? I don't believe anything is a right. Everything we enjoy is not a right. It is a privilege. This means that as a general rule, everything I enjoy is a source of gratitude. Because of this, my focus in life switches from what life owes me to thankfulness for what I have and to what I can continue to contribute to help others. 
I believe if our culture switched its focus from seeing everything as a right to regarding it as a privilege, we would live in a much better society where people are generally happier and more loving and giving toward others. Sadly, I'm not sure it's possible. Do you agree? Okay. So, my take is a variation on yours. I have said much of my life that my religious upbringing was not what secular life teaches. Secular life teaches we are we are born with rights and all of the discourse is know your rights. This is your right, this is your right. I grew up in a religious world where what was built in were obligations. And I believe that an obligation-based world will produce a much kinder world than a rights-based world. So I, I wouldn't say privilege. I don't think it's a privilege if you can eat. I think it's, it's, a, it's a sweet way of looking at it. I think it's a little poetic, and, but a nice, nicely poetic. What I, what I think of is I am obligated to feed the hungry. And I'm obligated to feed me and my family, obviously. So obligations trump rights in, in our discourse. We are rights drunk. I, I, I agree with you entirely in that regard. The way I think of rights is much more, uh, I have a right not to be hurt. I have a right not to be murdered, not to be embezzled. If I'm a woman, not to be raped. I mean, some men are raped by other men, but generally it's women. I have a right to not be criminally assaulted. But in terms of life, I think in terms of obligations, and that would be a better world. Okay, let's see. We, we met bunkers already. Patrick in Blountville, Tennessee, 66. Do you think it would be beneficial to our nation to have a third political party, like maybe the Constitutionalist Party? No, <laughs> I don't. Every attempt in American history at a third party has hurt the party which broke off into another party. Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican, started his own party and assured that a Democrat would win. Ralph Nader ran on a third party ticket and made sure that a Republican would win. Uh, I am 100% against third parties. They make people feel good, but they don't do any good. Change the two parties that exist, work on them. Okay. And by the way, once you had a third party, the same exact problems would arise within a generation or two, and then you'd want a fourth party. That's human nature. The problem isn't parties, it's people. All right, let's see here. Here's a good final one. Hello, Dennis and clan. You're the clan, guys. I am so grateful for this show and your books that have helped me organize and flesh out my opinions to speech and practice. 
I saw a quote on Facebook the other day that said, kids need to be complimented more than they are corrected. Seems like a dangerous route to go. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for all you do. I can't believe that. What a stupid quote. Oh my God. Kids need to be complimented more than corrected. Oh, I I believe you saw it. I believe that. When young people call me up, and this is frequent. Dennis, we're, uh, we're going to have our first child. What's your biggest recommendation in raising a kid? I say, here it goes. Self-control is infinitely more important than self-esteem. And they go, thank you. As soon as they hear it, it makes sense. I would say that I was corrected the ratio of my being corrected to my being complimented when I was a kid was approximately 10,000 to one. (laughs) I think I was complimented as a kid, I think three times. And the reason is I think I remember two of them. I'm just assuming there was a third. you're, the purpose of being a parent is not to make your kid feel good. It is to make your kid good, not feel good, just good. And that's how you do it. Of course, you should compliment them if they've earned it. I, I have no issue with that. But this massive worry that they won't have high self-esteem or think you they that I don't love them. It's it's all been unwise, very unwise. Yes, it's very important to correct your child. Who else is going to correct them? Friends don't correct generally. And if you don't correct them, they'll keep doing the wrong thing. Why is that a favor to them? Tell me, why is that a favor to a child not to correct them? So that, that is obviously what you expected me to say. <laughs> and I said it. <laughs> and there you go. Okay, everybody. Great to be with you. See you next week. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.